The law says, do this or die. The gospel says, done. Done through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is why watching for God to work in your life is foundational to faith. You didn't do anything to earn salvation. You didn't do anything to earn heaven. If it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, you would not be in this church tonight. If it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, you would be living in unrepentant sin. If it wasn't for the sovereignty of God, you would not be who you are today. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I am super excited about our study in the book of Joshua, and I want you to take your Bibles again and be turning this evening to Joshua chapter 3, the title of the message, Faith to Cross, and I want to begin reading in verse 1. Please hear the word of God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before." Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and pure word. Let us bow to him in prayer this evening. Father, we are grateful for the scriptures which give to us your truth, truth that you want this congregation to specifically hear this evening. The number of people who have gathered here, this message is for them. It is for us. Help us to know that. Help it to be an encouragement to our hearts. We pray for your glory and our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess it was uh, this past summer that I was riding in a car with uh, some men from our church as we were crossing the St. John's River, and I made the observation that if we were in a military campaign being chased by the enemy and we came to the St. John's River with no boats, no bridges, no cars to pass on a bridge, 
it would be nearly impossible to cross that river with a large army without a major and even majority number of casualties. Well, when you think of the Jordan River, I don't want you to think this evening of a little stream. I want you to think of a raging river. For this crossing, Israel was not on the defensive, but on the offensive. Nobody was chasing them as with the Red Sea event when they had the Egyptian army on their heels. No, this time was different. They were on the offensive. They were poised to attack Canaan on the other side under the command of Joshua, as we have been preparing to see as we have studied Joshua chapters 1 and 2. Israel found herself on the brink of a new frontier. Moses and most of the first generation had died in the wilderness and God had made it clear that Joshua was in charge of this new era of victory. That was what God was going to materialize. In fact, just to review, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. That is the message of Joshua. And as we talk about this message and we think about these historical events, we are tempted to think how glorious it must have been for this new generation of Israelites in this new era, in this new frontier. But we need to temper our thoughts because we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story was favorable to the Israelites, but to them they did not know. They did not know the future. Instead of picturing celebration in the camp, we should picture supplication. Instead of unhindered bravery, we should picture unhinged anxiety. Instead of capability, perhaps timidity. Such was expected and right. It is only human to have doubts, to not know the future, so long as faith is present, and faith was present. Not faith in themselves, but faith in God's covenant promises. This is really the most climactic event in Israel's history. The crossing of the Red Sea was not the climactic event. The crossing of the Jordan is the climactic event because half a millennium before this, God had promised to Abraham that his seed would conquer the land of Canaan. It was a promise that was repeated to all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for half a millennium. Most of the current generation uh, that was getting ready to cross the Jordan uh, had been born in the wilderness. They were wilderness people. They had lived there their whole lives. Um, and those that um, had not been born in the wilderness were people like Joshua and Caleb, who were really just young kids during the time when they first tried to cross and take over the land. These men, Joshua and Caleb, are now in their 80s. They are old, they are veterans of the faith, and they're trying to lead a people who are not really uh, familiar with change. They only knew the wilderness, all the difficulties that would take place in crossing this raging river, all the changes, um, all the battles, all of those things you can imagine would be a very hard sale to someone in their 80s, and it was Joshua's task to convince them to trust in the Lord. And I want you to know tonight that we will never understand their obedience to conquer apart from their faith in God's covenant promises. This was not an easy thing to do. And it's a reminder to us that it's in the difficult times, not in the easy times, that God even today fortifies our faith in Him. It's not in the moments of peace and pleasure like swimming in a pool in the cool of the day. No, it's when we are confronted by a raging river and God is our only hope of crossing the great and terrible divide. That is what makes the people of God who they are. And maybe you're in such a place even this evening. The question is, where will you turn? Well, you can't turn to the left and you can't turn to the right. You can't try to escape God's sovereign providence of the trials that he ordains in your life. 
You can't turn left, you can't turn right, but you can turn upward to God in faith. And just as he sovereignly allowed the disciples to go through a storm, not around a storm, so too the history of all of God's people, and this is what the event in Joshua 3 reminds us of, the history of all of God's people is marked by raging rivers and waters, stormy times. But God is always with us. We must have faith. Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4 reminds us of this. And I should say at the outset that this is not exactly a strict chronology, although it is close to that. For example, in chapter 3, if you look with me at verse 12, Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. That is a statement that is not fully explained until chapter 4. For example, verse 8, the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua. That is what the Lord told Joshua in chapter 3 and verse 12, but there is no explanation. And this is because Joshua is more concerned about writing a theology, not so much a strict history. In his providence, the history of his people was marked by the threat of drowning in deep waters were were it not for God's faithfulness to His covenant. And so these memorial stones are set up, we read later in chapter 4 and verse 20, those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan. Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the people, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. The stones are a memorial for God's people to remember His covenantal faithfulness, and it is God's faithfulness that feeds our faith. It is His faithfulness that feeds our faith, and that is why throughout the history of God's people, there are always these instances of the possibility of God's people drowning, whether it was the 12 disciples in the gospel records, or if it was Israel as they crossed the Red Sea, or Israel crossing the Jordan. This all comes down to an issue of God's faithfulness, and it comes down to an issue of your faith in the God who is faithful. If you remember last time in chapter 2, we discovered the faith of Rahab, a woman who was a harlot, who wasn't even part of God's people. She trusted in God's covenantal promises. And so this is a natural transition into chapter 3. The question is, will Israel, the covenant people of God, have the same faith as the harlot Rahab. These verses are powerful because chapter 3 teaches us about God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. When we don't know how to pass through the raging waters of this world safely, we are to look up to God in faith. And the passage helps us because faith is defined in four ways. First of all, we are told that faith waits Secondly, that faith walks. Third, that faith watches. And four, that faith works. Notice, first of all, we learn that faith waits. Faith waits on God. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. This is not a strict chronology. This is really verse 1, a flashback too early or shortly after Moses had died, perhaps uh, Joshua, after receiving his commission from the Lord to be the new leader, the next day, as verse 1 says, he rose early in the morning and he ordered the people to break camp. Verse 1 says to set out from Shittim, that would have been about a 10-mile journey, perhaps a day of travel. And at the end of that 10 miles, verse 1 says, they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. In between verses 1 and 2, they lodged in camp near the banks of the Jordan River. This is when they sent out the spies, and those spies had that glorious life-saving encounter with Rahab, and she had that glorious soul-saving encounter with God through her faith. When the spies returned, the report was good. Do you remember that? In chapter 2, verse 24, they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. There is every indication that the people as a whole, not just the spies, were marked by faith. 
because of the report and because of what we read now in verse 2 of chapter 3, at the end of those three days, the officers went through the camp. And verse 3 tells us they commanded the people to break camp and begin walking toward the Jordan. More about that in a moment. But for now, just realize that verse 2 and verse 1 is really a series of flashbacks. If you go back with me to chapter 1 and verse 11, I'll show this to you. Joshua in verse 10 commanded the officers, verse 11, pass through the midst of the camp, command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now we see why the soldiers, uh, the men, the women, the children were so ready to obey. They had believed the good report from the spies. Three days has transpired since Joshua's commission. They have camped near the Jordan. They now have faith that the previous generation didn't have. They had waited on God, and when God spoke, they moved. And they remembered that unbelief had cost them 40 years in the wilderness. And so Joshua, you don't see Joshua here requesting an extension to wait until the Jordan waters were a little bit lower, until they were subdued. You don't see Joshua calling on a crisis committee to determine what to do next. No, Joshua and the people of God were waiting on God and God's word was confirmed in the report by the spies. There's no record here of the men collecting together to give counsel to Joshua to try to pass around the Jordan by going north or by passing south to go around the Jordan. If they would have went to the north, they would have faced a collision of northern kingdom armies. If they would have went to the south, they would have faced a a southern collision collision of um, coalition of forces. There was no way around this trial, and they knew that. And they didn't even know at this point how it was that they were going to pass over the Jordan because God hasn't told them yet, but they knew that God was in charge. You know, it's been well said, the only difference between a live wire and a dead wire is a connection. Well, Israel had a spiritual, supernatural connection with God. He was their leader, and they had faith to wait, but once God spoke... They moved. And I don't know where you are at in your life. And I don't know what sorts of prayers you are praying to God. But you are to wait on God. That is part of a walk of faith. Waiting on God. Waiting for Him to speak. Waiting on Him to confirm His will for your life. And you can only find His will for your life in the Word of God. That report that came back from the spies was nothing short of a word from God. They were waiting for that because faith waits on God. But there's a second thing that marks faith. Faith not only waits on God, but number two, faith walks with God. And we see this in verses 3 through 8. Notice first verses 3 and 4. We read that the officers commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now note verse 4, the command is, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. A faith that is strong not only waits on God, but also walks with God, and more specifically, walks behind God. Did you notice that? It is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the major point of emphasis in these verses. As a matter of fact, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned nine times in chapter 3, seven times in chapter 4, and four other times indirectly by the use of pronouns. It's all about the Ark of the Covenant. And verse 3 says that it would be carried by the Levitical priests. We can understand why they were in charge of the priestly ceremonies. And the people shall set out and follow behind it. In other words, God would go before the people marching in front of them. And though the miracle of the parting waters has not yet been explained, with the people going before, or with God going before the people and them following after, They could sense something was going to happen because they understood as every Israelite understood that the ark was a sign of God's presence. It was a sign of Yahweh's intervention. They sensed that God was going to lead them safely through the waters and although they didn't know how he was going to do that, they knew that he was the actor, they were the spectators and their responsibility was simply to follow his lead. Their responsibility was to follow from behind and that's what they did so when they broke camp when they got their provisions ready as chapter one says when they packed up their tents 
When they began to take their steps 2,000 cubits away from the ark of the Lord, every single step, every single action was a walk and a step of faith. By the way, verse 4 says they were to follow behind 2,000 cubits. Now, I'm not good at math. The way that I learned math was by watching American football. 2,000 cubits is about 1,000 yards. So if you can imagine 10 football fields in length, This means that the people were walking pretty far behind the ark, which means they were camped pretty far from the Jordan. They didn't want the citizens of Jericho to see them there. They were not to come near the ark, the passage says. The officers commanded them, for you have not passed this way before, verse 2. They were not to come near that ark. You remember what happened to Uzzah, and I think it was 2 Samuel chapter 6. They were carrying the ark to Jerusalem and The oxen stumbled and Uzzah tried to steady the ark in direct violation of God's word and God struck him dead. God's intervention on their behalf and on our behalf doesn't make us so familiar with God that he becomes our buddy. That's important to understand and he's not so distant that he's just the man upstairs. We need to fear him even as we trust him. I like what Calvin says on this. He says, Faithful trust, so far from begetting security and boldness, is on the contrary, always coupled with fear. The Ark of the Covenant was indeed, Calvin says, a strong and pleasant pledge of the divine favor, but at the same time, it had an awful majesty to it. And that's why they were following far behind. And so we read in verse 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The consecration was necessary because the ark was holy, God was holy, the event was holy, so consecrate yourselves. This means, uh, when we look at other passages in the Old Testament, they consecrated themselves by washing their clothes, by bathing, by abstaining from relations between husband and wife, and the point of the consecration was the point of purification and the point of expectation. The expectation was, if they were marked by consecration and purification, that God would act on their behalf. Listen to me tonight. Consecration is vital for true faith to be present. Do you consecrate or prepare yourself for worship before you sit under the preaching of the Word of God? If not, then you won't sense God at work in your life. You'll feel distant from Him. You won't know what to do in those moments of crisis. And you'll lack faith in the power of His Word apart from consecrating yourself for worship. Or here's another question. Do you consecrate yourself before leaving for work in the morning? Do you consecrate yourself before that important meeting? Do you consecrate yourself before surgery or before a doctor's visit or before a test or before a game? If not, you won't walk behind God. You'll try to walk before God and you'll trust in the carnality of your own strength. It was several weeks ago that one of my soccer teams began to pray before our games. It was not something that I initiated. It was something they initiated on their own. They know that I'm a pastor. They know I'm a Christian. And I guess they sort of suppose they can draw upon a higher power and it might give them some sort of victory. And one of the players takes his necklace off and the boys pray and I join them. And uh, the first time this happened, uh, the player gave me his necklace because you can't wear jewelry on the field. And so I just put it in my pocket and zipped it up. Well, that sealed the deal because we went on a winning streak for several games, and uh, finally we came to a game a a week or so ago, and uh, we went down 1-0. And uh, someone on the bench sitting behind me, one of my players said, Coach, and I turned around and he said, do you still have the necklace in your pocket? As if it's a good luck charm. God's not a good luck charm. But we are to consecrate ourselves, purify ourselves. Do you consecrate your children To be able to live in this world is God walking before your family. Let me just say, consecration is not the same thing as isolation. 
We are not to be of the world, but we can't escape being in the world. Israel was called to consecrate themselves, not to prepare to stay isolated in the wilderness, away from those dirty pagans, but to walk step by step behind God, with God, with consecrated lives to invade the pagan land. And how else are Christians today going to influence a pagan culture apart from being involved in cultural and political and community issues? You see, God will fight for us, but He expects us to march into battle and wage a good warfare. And so you see, walking by faith is living the right way. It's doing the right things, trusting that God will walk before you. He will walk ahead of you. He will fight your battles. He will bless you along the way. But you must live a consecrated and purified life. And here we see faith. The children of Israel, again, did not know how they would cross the Jordan to achieve victory. That is not told to them, but what they did know and what they did have faith in was that God was able, even in their incapability, when their hearts and lives were consecrated before God. And that's a good place to be, to be consecrated, to be walking behind God, not ahead of God. Notice verse 6, and Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. They went before the people. This was less of a military maneuver and more like a religious procession. Because that Ark symbolized several things, and I have several things in your notes that I want you to see. First of all, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's power, God's power to defeat his enemies. One commentator I read in preparation for this message said that the crossing of the Jordan was less of a military maneuver, as I said, and more of a religious procession. And that is important to understand. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's power to defeat his enemies. In Exodus 25, we read that it was a portable shrine that was to be constructed, a rectangular-shaped box, three feet, nine inches long, and about two feet, three inches wide and high. It was made of acacia wood, but it was overlaid with gold. The acacia wood uh, was resistant to decay. Overlaid with gold, and the lid on top had attached to it cherubim. These were angel-like creatures that were facing each other, with their wings stretched outward and upward. And in between the wings, it was believed because God's word said that God's power resided. For example, Numbers says, this is the words of Moses. Moses said, rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it, that is the ark, came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. The ark of the covenant represented the power of God. And today God's sovereign power is still present. His presence isn't over the ark, but His presence as the enthroned and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is over all of the earth. And the presence of Christ goes with us, the power of Christ. And so this ark symbolized God's power to defeat His enemies. And I also just said that the ark symbolized God's presence to comfort His people. His presence was with them before, but they didn't have enough faith to follow. That was earlier in Joshua's life, and then when they they tried to lead God, it wasn't a good result, because the only proper way to advance anywhere, and for any reason at any time, is by following God's lead, His guiding presence. That is what we need. I've promised you my presence with you everywhere you go. I will never, never leave you as you travel here below. That is the promise of God's word. The ark symbolized not only God's power to defeat his enemies, God's presence to comfort his people, but third, God's persistence to lead his people. You know, God's persistence to lead Israel did not come because they had perfect faith. No, he simply asks us as he asked Israel to obey with a strong and courageous spirit. For example, notice verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, "Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel." that they may know that I was with Moses, so I will be with you. But in order for God to be with Joshua, what did he have to do? Well, I read it earlier. 
He said in chapter 1, I'll be with you, I won't leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success where you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then your way will be prosperous. There's another thing that the ark represented. It also represented God's purity, that is his holiness, because what was inside that ark were the stone tablets. These stone tablets had inscribed on them the law of God, which was not some arbitrary, capricious list of demands, but it flowed from God's holy, pure character. It's a good reminder to us that when God leads, wherever He leads, it's always to a right place. He leads with the utmost purity. His presence in the law of God says, you can trust my word and my law to leave you. And that law reminded Israel This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You aren't to turn to the left or to the right. You are to follow God. You are to follow God's word. You are to follow God's law. How do the people of God today know that his presence is with them? When they follow the book of the law, when they follow the scriptures. So the Ark of the Covenant represented all of this. This was ceremonial as much as it was militaristic. The Ark represented God's power to feed His enemies, God's presence to comfort His people, God's persistence to lead His people, God's purity, that is His holiness, and fifth, God's performance to save His people. Let's not forget that the crossing of the Jordan demonstrated God's salvation of His people. That Ark symbolized The demonstration of God's justice and His mercy. That ark was a reminder of God's justice because there God stood above the lid, above the place that the law of God was contained. You remember that the first tablets of stone were broken by Moses because God's people had broken the law. And new ones were made. They were placed in that ark of the covenant And God's presence was above the tablets, as if to say, my presence resides where my purity resides, which is where my law is, and don't come near this. Sin can't be in my presence. It's a reminder to us of God's justice. The ark reminded the people of God's justice and of His law, but it also reminded them of His mercy and His grace, because God looked down from the wings of the cherubim from heaven He looked down on these lawbreakers that were carrying the law and he saw what his son would do, which was put the law of God back together, obey the law of God as a substitute for his people. And that is why we call the lid of the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat which is a picture of Jesus the substitute, the one who fully kept the law of God, never breaking it, and then was a sacrifice and the high priest at the same time. So putting all of these symbols together, we see pictured in the ark the work of Christ, the performance of Christ. Notice verse 8, And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. I love this verse because guess what? The priests did nothing. In fact, they were commanded to do nothing. They were commanded to stand still. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of what God does for us. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus told Nicodemus, you can do nothing. You must be born again. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't earn righteousness. You can't gain God's favor and be justified by God through religious rites or through works. That's Paul's whole point in the book of Romans. Jesus goes before us. Jesus is our deliverer. That is really... The point of this passage. So bringing it practically home, why fret about the doctor's appointment? To bring this home, why worry when people misrepresent 
you. You have Jesus as your deliverer. Why be concerned when raging rivers are before you? Psalm 37, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or God's children begging for bread. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, these words are quoted, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Consecrate yourselves, purify yourselves, we could say. Don't live for money, live for God. Set yourself apart for, for God and His purposes. Why? I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a quotation from Joshua. And verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my what? Helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Jesus put it this way. He said a sparrow can't fall to the ground without the Father noticing that. Jesus said that the Father has numbered the very hairs on your head. Why worry about tomorrow? Why wring your hands and be anxious about the future? Trust in God. Our help comes from the Lord. And beloved, you have to understand that Joshua 3 is about Jesus. It is about our salvation deliverance through Jesus who did it all. We just stood there like the priests. And Jesus delivered us. But there's more to faith. And that's why I love this passage. This passage tells us that when we don't know how to pass through the raging waters of this world safely, we are to look up to God in faith. And we're to know that faith waits on God, number one. Number two, faith walks with God, not before Him, but behind Him. But number three, faith watches for God. Faith watches for God. And we see this in verses 9 through 13. This means that true faith expects God to act. Faith waits on God. Faith walks with God. But faith also watches for God. Notice verse 9. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites... The Jebusites, confidence, faith in God, in the midst of crisis, looks and watches for direction from God. To put it the way Joshua put it, we are to listen to the words of the Lord our God. You know, not every command in Scripture has moral qualities to either do this thing or do that thing. In other words, the Bible's call to action is not always a call for you or me to act, but a call to watch God act. To believe that He is capable, that He is sovereign, that He can perform miracles. It's a call to recognize that He is in control and we aren't asked to do anything except trust Him. And I should say on a side note, that not all preaching tells you what you must do and not do. That sort of preaching we could classify as meddling. Don't do this, do that. Do this, don't do that. No, the purpose of Christ-centered preaching, the purpose of true exposition most of the time is to get your eyes off of yourself and what you are doing and get them focused on God and what He is doing to become so familiar with His character, His love, His grace, His mercy, His sovereignty that you trust Him. And that's exactly what Joshua is telling the people to do. Listen to the words of the Lord your God. And notice again in verse 10, he says, this is what God's going to do. So you know that he's the living God among you and that without fail he'll drive out from before you all these ites You're going to see a miracle take place, so watch for it. He's a living God. Notice the text says. He's living and active. He will not fail. In contrast to the gods of the pagans, the God of Israel will act. That's the point. God is a man of war, Moses said. The psalmist mocks false gods. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. Why? Because He is living. He is breathing. He is real. Incidentally, Scripture is described as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That is warfare language, and Paul was fond of using warfare language. On one occasion, the Apostle Paul said these words. He said that we are to destroy strongholds and everything raised up against God. We are to destroy strongholds and everything raised up against God. How do we destroy the ideologies and false theologies of the world? We destroy it with the words of Scripture. Because the words of Scripture are powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what Joshua is saying. Listen to my sermon. Listen to the words of the Lord. Now, there are some today that criticize long sermons. There are some today who criticize worship services that place Scripture as the central feature. That is a sinister way to elevate the flesh and to elevate rituals and to elevate what man does. It is a discipline to sit and listen and wait and hear the words of God. And that is the God-ordained means for us to see how God is working in our lives, the more familiar we are with the Bible. And in this sermon that Joshua gives, he's giving instructions to the people to tell them not to do something great for God, but to recognize the great and sovereign feat that God is getting ready to do. The best thing you can do to water your faith so that it grows is to sit under the water of the preached word. And what does Joshua want the people to watch God do? Notice beginning in verse number 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, there's that phrase again, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Verse 12 there is a reference to the memorial stones, a man from each tribe. There would be twelve stones representing the twelve tribes. We'll see more about that next time. But for now, verse 13 is really the focus because what Joshua is saying is that if God can somehow tame this raging river, getting those waters to stand in one heap, as verse 13 says, he's really predicting what the God of Israel will do and he wants Israel to watch closely. He wants Israel to watch what God will do and what he will do after in destroying all of those ites, the Perizzites and Jebusites and Girgashites and Amorites. Joshua is saying, pay careful attention. Notice, to the Lord of all the earth, what he does. The Lord of all the earth. In other words, if he can get you into the land, then surely he can give you the land. If he can get you across the water, then he can get you into the land. And if he can get you into the land... He will give the land to you. Or to put it in New Testament language, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Romans eight thirty two. In other words, if God saves us from the waters of judgment and sin, that by the way, we deserve to drown in because... And only because of the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat by Jesus the high priest, then though we've broken the law of God, that law cannot condemn us. That's what we spoke about this morning. Christ is with us. Christ is in us. Christ is before us. 
He has put the broken law back together and he hovers as the ascended reigning Lord Jesus Christ, to borrow the language of verse 13, as the Lord, not over the ark, but the Lord over all the earth. The flow of the river would be cut off upstream and those waters would collect in a heap so that a land bridge would take Israel to victory. This is a beautiful picture. In fact, our sin in Adam occurred upstream. We read in this passage that the city of Adam was upstream. Our sin in Adam occurred upstream in human history. But it was Jesus, Romans 5, the second Adam, who took upon himself the heap of God's judging waters and through his baptism unto death provided a way of fellowship so that we could come into the safe presence of a holy God. Those stone tablets in the ark held up by the priests in the water didn't just represent the law of God, they represented God's faithfulness to the covenant. His faithfulness to the covenant made to Abraham that was passed through Moses and down through Joshua and down through the centuries that there was coming a one who would make the reality such that justice and mercy symbolized in the ark would kiss each other. That though we are sinners, though we deserve to drown in the waters of God's judgment and suffocate in eternal wrath, we have been delivered. The waters have been cleared. Jesus was drowned unto death for us and His sprinkled blood delivers us from our sins and transgressions. The law says, do this or die. The gospel says, done. Done through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is why watching for God to work in your life is foundational to faith. You didn't do anything to earn salvation. You didn't do anything to earn heaven. If it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, you would not be in this church tonight. If it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, you would be living in unrepentant sin. If it wasn't for the sovereignty of God, you would not be who you are today. So why not continue to watch God work sovereignly in your life to deliver you from trials, to deliver you from sin, to deliver you from slander, to preserve your life, to preserve your reputation, to help you pay your bills, to help you raise godly children, to help you be prosperous prosperous and successful just as God blessed Joshua and the nation of Israel this passage is all about faith when we don't know how to pass through the raging waters of this world safely where are we to where are we to look we are to look up to God in faith and what is faith faith waits on God what is faith faith walks with God what is faith faith watches for God because he is still living and active But faith not only waits on God, faith not only walks with God, faith not only watches for God, but number four, faith works by God. And we see this in verses 14 through 17. We know that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves never comes alone. And we see that in verses 14 through 17 because the children of Israel obey and prove their faith. Notice, for example, verse 14, it says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, verse 15, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. I'll stop right there. I just want to point out the fact that verse 14 is pointing out the fact that they actually began to pass through those waters. The priests obeyed the orders. They obeyed. Their faith worked itself out in obedience. This is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It is faith that is at work in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. That's what they are doing. And as I read in verse 15, this is revealing to us that this was even a more impossible feat than maybe we realized at the beginning of the sermon Because verse 15 indicates the fact that the river was at the flood stage. That in order for the raging water to be stopped, the only intervention had to be an intervention from God. This was a God thing. And verse 16 mentions, as I said earlier, the city of Adam, which was located above or upstream, about 20 miles upstream. 
And verse 16 mentions the Sea of Araba, which is also called here the Dead Sea, which is, uh, or also called the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea. And it says here that God had to completely cut off the waters upstream and collect them in a heap very far away while the waters downstream emptied into the Dead Sea. Now, it, it's hard to really grasp, I think, the significance of this, and I'm going to try to explain this to you. I'm not a science person and don't understand science, but I know how to read, and I think I understand what I'm going to tell you tonight. Within the Jordan Valley, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, there were varying depths. Anywhere from 3 to 14 miles deep was this valley. And within this valley, the river's floodplain was anywhere from 200 yards to a mile wide. So when the valley was flooded, the width of the river was nearly a mile wide. That is not all, because the floodplain was marked by tons of brush and growth. This wasn't just a river. This was a jungle that they would have to cross. The water itself, during the time of the year in which it was flooded, was anywhere from 3 feet to 12 feet deep. And even further still, the current was strong because there was a drop in elevation beginning at the Sea of Galilee of an average of 9 feet per mile of droppage. Gravity takes no prisoners. This was a raging river. Let me put it to you in layman's terms. This was suicide. Nobody would try to cross this river. And that reveals to us why God didn't allow them to cross until it was clear that it was impossible to cross on their own. How are you going to cross an army? Men, women, children, elderly, baggage, animals, impossible. That's the point of the story. Verse 17, now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Wow. They actually had faith Evidenced by their obedience and God performed a miracle. They all crossed on dry ground. And so the question is, what kept them from being washed away from the waters raging? The answer is they continue to trust God. The question, what prevents us from being washed away or tossed about as we obediently walk through stormy waters and trials? The answer is our faith. It hasn't changed for us. Turn with me to the book of James in chapter 1, the famous passage on trials. Verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't try to escape the trial. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And notice verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in what? Faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, when we are helpless, in the midst of our trials, we must have faith that our help, Psalm 121, comes from the Lord. We aren't just to believe God. Even the demons believe God. We are to believe in God. We are to have a personal, trusting, walking, step-by-step faith in God. And by the way, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. There is foundational to Christianity, theology. There is an intellectual and theological element to our faith. It's not blind faith. But there's also an experiential element. 
And this is how it works. True faith works and obeys in a mysterious way. We can't fully understand. God's grace turns the lever of faith to stop and cut off the floodwaters so that His true children are not swept away but are strengthened in their faith in the midst of mighty sea billows and God-ordained strength. Now, I'm telling you that because James 1 says that in theology form, but I also tell you that because I know that by experience. I watch my own life and the lives of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ And I am very close to the trials that other people face. The pain that they go through. The heartache of an unbelieving child. The pain of a dim diagnosis. The pain of a death of a loved one. And how is it that some professing Christians drown in those trials, and others make it out safely? Well, it's because true faith perseveres, true faith works, true faith obeys, true faith trusts God. That's James 1. The more trials you go through, the more your faith is strengthened. Why? Because you've been through so many trials. You are fortified. You have perseverance. You pick your feet up and you walk Step by step in faith. That's what true believers do. That's what the children of Israel did. So I ask you tonight, how deep is your faith? Does it plumb the depths of your river of despair so that you are stable in your faith? Or are you tossed about? Do you waver? Well, if you waver, and all of us do from time to time, let me just tell you this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 6, Jesus is our anchor. That's why Israel wasn't swept away and that's why we aren't swept away in our trials. Now let me just say this. How can you know That your faith is real. Give me two or three more minutes. Going over these points again. Number one. Faith waits on God. So do you fret? Are you patient for direction from God? Or do you commit a false start? Listen. God is the quarterback. He's in charge. You aren't to step ahead of Him. When it comes to important decisions. You aren't to move ahead until you hear His voice through His Word. You are to live with wisdom. And as James says, if you lack wisdom, you are to ask God for that wisdom. But you are to wait on God. True believers wait on God. They don't make rash decisions as a pattern. And you show me someone who has broken relationships and a litany of bad decisions And I'll show you someone that might think they are a Christian, but they're an example of someone who doesn't have true faith because they never wait on God. They want to tell God what to do. Faith waits on God. Is your faith real? Number two, faith walks with God. What does that mean? It means that you don't walk ahead of God. You walk behind His Word. You let His Word lead you. You also let His covenant promises lead you. God said He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You also let His law lead you. God has given us His standards written down. It's plain and simple. So how do you know you have true faith? Do you obey God's Word? Do you obey His law? Do you delight in the law of God? The psalmist did. Do you have faith? Faith waits on God. Faith walks with God. Number three, faith watches for God. Listen, don't think you're alone. God is always with you. As I said, He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. It matters not what man does to you. It matters not what trials come your way. Watch for God. Trust in God. Look to God. He'll give you the strength. He is the anchor for your soul. Do you have faith? Faith waits on God. Faith walks with God. 
Faith watches for God and fourth, faith works by God. In an amazing way, God empowers His children to prove that their faith is real when they walk in obedience, even in the midst of hard times. Isn't that a blessing from God? What a gift. That God gives to us an assurance of our faith and our salvation measured by the degree to which we can go through trials and still praise God. Not that we have perfect faith, not that there aren't tears, not that there aren't moments of anger and despair, but we always come through the trial. And when we come through the trial, we look back at the trial and we say, thank you, Lord, for that, because that humbled me. Thank you, Lord, for that, because that made me more like Christ. Thank you, Lord, for that, because now I'm truly looking to you as my all in all. There is no hope in this world apart from you, and I needed to know that. So thank you for the troubling waters. You see, the Old Testament is immensely practical. It is immensely Christ-centered, and the message is the same. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, God always sounds like a broken record. You will never have anything if you don't have Christ. But if you have Christ, you've been delivered, and you've been promised to be an heir of the world, not just the land of Canaan. You have been promised eternal blessings through Jesus Christ who gave up his life for us. I don't know about you, but that fortifies me in the midst of a trial. That helps me when I'm feeling sorry for myself to say, quit looking down and look up to God. Trust in him. Hold forth the banner of Christ and march forward behind him. Trusting in him. He's not a buddy. But he's not just the man upstairs. He's our father. We're his children. And Christ is a brother to us. We can go to him. Let us with confidence approach the throne of grace that we might find mercy to help us in time of need. This is the message of Joshua 3. May God seal it to our hearts. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.